0: What's up everybody and welcome to another boardroom out of office podcast special edition live from my office today So not technically out of the office, but as always I'm here with my man Gianni Harrell. How we doing? (laughs) That was good, man. You went with the mob (laughs) little mob version of it mix it up Uh, And to my right we have philanthropist entrepreneur author friend and now, running for governor of Maryland, Mr. Wes Moore. Welcome, Wes. My guys, good to be with y'all. Good to be, it's good to be in the boardroom. It's good to be in the boardroom indeed, <laughs> man. And thank you for coming to New York for this. Of course. A um, lot going on, lot going on with you. I was looking kind of at your history outside of what I know of you as a friend. And at 43 years old, is pretty insane what you've accomplished. Um, I assume you love your life.
1: I love my life, man. I love. I'm. 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 I'm, uh, As the expression goes, I am blessed and highly favored. (laughs) You know what I mean. Blessed and highly favored. I do.
0: So I like to think I've done a lot. I'm 45, but when I when I saw the amount of books you've put out, organizations you've run, TV shows, fought in the military, which we'll get into, and now obviously running for governor, you're a family man. um, Was doing a lot and being successful and being driven, something that was kind of born into, mm-hmm. like was it, the, was it the landscape of your home? I know you lost your father when you were young, but was the idea of like you need to accomplish a lot, was that something that was part of your childhood?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's interesting because I think that um, I did, I mean, I, I learned early and unfortunately often just about this reminder of, of life's impermanence. Like, you know, we're not promised anything, you know? I would say no one's ever promised, no one's ever tapped me on the shoulder and said, Wes, you've got 5,464 days left, so pace yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there, there, there is a measure of, of, of impermanence to all this, and uh, you know, yeah, I mean, the last memory I had of my father was when I was about four years old and he died in front of me. Um, and, and I think that I saw early that the time that we have, if it's not promised, that means let's actually do something with it. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's push, let's drive, let's let's focus, let's yeah. go ahead and do some things with it. Because with every single day, uh, as long as you keep in context that that day is a blessing, then you have to then use your blessings accordingly. So yep. I think that you know, from a from a from a pretty young age, that idea of life's impermanence became something that became pretty mm-hmm. driven into me, and um, and I think I've just tried to live my life accordingly understanding that experience. yeah
0: that makes sense i mean i think it's i have an exceptional memory of my childhood and it's pretty special tool when you can like mm-hmm. really pull from memories that are so clear to you That's of right. 30 yeah. years ago and i've started to tell my children them and started to really use them and empower me but to remember that feeling when your father passed away and that it still resonates with you you must similarly have like real memories of
1: that yeah. period of your life I mean, literally, I, I remember uh, uh, you know, what ended up happening for, for, for that memory um, was he went to a hospital, and his face was unshaven, and his clothes were disheveled, and, uh, and when he arrived at the hospital, there was assumptions about whether or not he had insurance. Um, and he, he was sick, and he couldn't really defend himself. Mm-hmm. And when my mother got to the hospital, they were asking her questions like, is he prone to exaggeration? And they asked him to leave the hospital and they said, you know, go home and get some rest. And if it gets worse to come back. And the memory that I have of that moment was um, he was upstairs, he was getting some rest and I heard him kind of coming down the stairs and I went to the steps so he could see him as he's coming down the steps and he collapsed and he just collapsed coming down the stairs. And, um, And then I then there was a crash because my mother was in the kitchen, and she was cooking something. And you know, she heard the cr- she heard the crash. She drops. She's doing. She runs out. And she sees him, and then everything then just becomes this measure of a blur. Mm-hmm. At that point, you know, my mom calling, everybody scurrying mm-hmm. around. Eventually, the hospital the ambulance come. Um, but but that was it. And what yeah. was was amazing. Is to your point that there was so much about that period that is just fog. And then there's certain things that you remember so distinctly, mm-hmm. and like that moment of watching and going, to "Say like I remember that moment," and um, and it's something just kind of it 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 sits with you.
0: Yeah, it's like you, it's like a movie you watched in some weird ways exactly. 20, 30 years ago. Do you do you remember your childhood like that?
2: I do. I also my. Ch- I do remember my childhood from my perspective, but I also remember my parents telling me what my childhood was like. So I, I'm always like, "Oh yeah, I remember that." Yeah. You told me that well, story they, they, a million times, and I'm like, "Oh, I was there." Yeah, they
0: definitely have. Um, th- there's a completely different read on what happened from yeah. your parents and from you, and they're both real. Which is what I've learned to realize. Mm-hmm. Like what I felt as a kid was real, and I
1: probably also exaggerated it because I was a kid. Um, and you and you see that too, essentially with parents. And I think even right now, you know, parents. You know, I know you got you got twelve and eight. And yep, you know, I've I've have, yep. uh, have ten and eight. But there's certain things, and I and I, I learned throughout the process because actually, you know, when I ended up writing writing the other Westmore, it forced me to almost interview my mom in a way that I didn't interview her before. Like we had conversations between mother and son before, but when I had to write this book, I had to like ask her questions. Like, no, no, I need you to answer yeah. this question, and. Yep. She's sharing things at that point. We're like, damn, I never knew that. I never thought about it that way. But as a parent, there are certain things, and and, and and G, you just talked about where there's certain things as a, you know, we want to, there's certain things that we don't want to expose our children to. Yeah. There's certain traumas that we're not trying to expose our children to. There's certain, there's certain weights that we're like, let us carry it. Cause yeah. I don't want you to ever have to carry that weight. And then having to now, when you're an adult, and you see it from a different perspective or you're having different type of conversations you realize that you know that that dynamic and those memories yeah uh there's a lot of color that needed to get fiddled, yeah, filled yeah that's into I, that's
0: very true because it's like um they almost believe the story they have to tell you and they <laughs> told it for so long that that's their truth that's right and then you have to say to them like i'm not mad anymore but you got to keep it real you we're a mess, <laughs> like, yes, you know what I'm yes. saying, like it wasn't all good, yes. but that's okay. And that, that is a process, and it's it's cool when you get some confirmation, because it can be, um, you know, I know you were joking about it, but it can be really frustrating, to be honest, when you try to uh, unravel some of that, and then your parents are like, no, nah, no, nah, come on, it wasn't that <laughs> deep, and it's like, no, it, it was pretty deep, you know yeah. what I'm saying, like, you you're the ones that held it back, but, um, <laughs> When I, I remember when I first met you, I knew you were from Maryland and that's because I, you know, I managed Wale and when I was in the music world, I've been working with KD for 10 years and got to know everybody in PG County. Um, I knew you were from Maryland and that's just something that I'm, I can pick up from, right? Okay. But you moved here uh, a little while after your, your father passed to New York. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your mom felt like you just had to escape a bit and get away? Was that what that was about?
1: I think that, I think that she needed it. Yeah. Um, you know, she has a lot of her, a lot of her f- friends and, you know, also everyone on my dad's side of family, like, you know, cause I'm, I'm a third generation Marylander. My, 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 my family on my father's side rolls deep in mm-hmm. Prince George's County and, yep. you know, kind of which, uh, which is kind of a, a, a neighboring area of Washington, DC. Um, but my mother, when she really needed a place for refuge, because that was a really hard period on her. I mean, like literally within a moment, you now become a widow with three children, you're gonna raise on your own. Yeah. And she was trying to process that. And, um, and uh, the place that she went to for refuge was, uh, was her parents. And my grandfather was a, uh, was a minister in the Bronx. He was actually uh, uh, the first black minister in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church. And at that time he had a church in the South Bronx and my grandmother was a school teacher in the South Bronx for 27 years. And so when my mother needed refuge, Mm -hmm. when she needed a place, when she needed space, when she needed help, Mm -hmm. uh, she called the only the place that she knew that would be an automatic. Yes and now was her parents and my grandparents, and that was what let moved us up from Maryland at the time to then moving up to New York, uh, where I, you know, at that time, then spent the next, you know, call it, you know, eight, eight 10 years of my life, um, you know, in New York yep. at that time, my grandparents. And so there was
0: an academic-type environment that existed back in New York, and I saw that you went to um, Riverdale, yeah. right? <laughs> Which, that's in the 80s, um, must have been an interesting experience coming from where you came from <laughs> moving to the Bronx and then you must have done very well in school at that point right it,
1: it was it was crazy rich and and it was funny because um, Riverdale is like the school that John F Kennedy used to go to mm-hmm. uh, it's right on the Hudson River it was beautiful and it was a place that my mother always heard about when she when she was coming up because she grew up in, in the Bronx after she moved from Jamaica uh, and uh, but never thought that that would actually be a reality yeah for her Um, but she ended up at that time she was working different jobs working multiple jobs and was like I'm 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 convinced I have to get my son to attend this school school." Um, and it was I mean it's a it's a beautiful place and a beautiful school and 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 all the things that um that you know that we talk about Um, it was also just the place that I found myself getting very lost because it was you know I was you know picked up from one environment and so much of the other environment, I didn't understand, right? Like at first, I didn't understand why it would take me, you know, an hour, hour and a half to get to school every day when that wasn't mm-hmm. the case for most of the other kids. Yeah. Uh, but it's also things like where I very quickly found myself being, you know, too poor for the kids in school mm-hmm. because they didn't understand my, my situation, where I was, and that kind of thing. And, but now I'm too rich for the kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Who are kind of like, oh, he goes to he goes to Riverdale. Riverdale, yeah. And so you're caught in the middle of these worlds, and neither world understands each other. Yep. And so that was, and so I think uh, so much of the things that I was going through, so much of the, uh, frankly, this, um, this, uh, these compounded traumas that you can consider sit is that you never felt comfortable in your own skin, mm-hmm. no matter where you were. Because when I was in school, you had to kind of, you know, make sure that you didn't stick out too much there. Yeah. When you're back at home, you had to make sure you, you didn't stick out too much there. And so you really were trying to find a bit of an identity yeah. of who you were. And, uh, and I think that's what, um, that's kind of what, unders- what underscored a lot of the challenges that I had where, you know, even the academics, just frankly, it's not like the work was difficult. Um, you know, I was, you know, perfectly capable of doing yeah. work. It was a choice. Yep. And then back in, you know, neighborhood, it was like, you know, it wasn't like I had to get involved in a lot of stuff that I got involved. It was a choice. Yep. I was just making bad choices. Yeah. Yeah. At that time.
2: Do you feel like because of the juxtaposition between Riverdale and the Bronx and other areas in the box that it allowed you to assimilate to other people, other cultures, and that carried over into your political career at all?
1: It's interesting. I mean I, I think um Yes. And the other thing that I think that experience really taught me to be is comfortable with who I am. Yeah. And it's just way too hard trying to fit in everywhere you go. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 I've, I've stopped. I don't do that. I don't feel like, OK, when I go here, I need to talk this way or say this. Or when I go here, I need to act this way or dress that way. Just be you. Yeah, and I think because I think what I was doing at a younger age was you were trying to always find yourself assimilating to the environments that you had, um, and I think it was just too hard for me. I, I think one of the things that I've now um, there's there's two things that I think I I, I very much take. Uh, one is it is this idea that I do. I do pride myself on my measure of empathy in the folks that we're speaking to, because as we're talking to people, whether it's people out in you know out in you know the chicken farmers in Maryland, or the people who are the watermen in the Eastern Shore, or the the person who's been living in, living in generational poverty in Baltimore County, or the person who's the entrepreneur, uh, but the struggling entrepreneur in, in Prince George's, there's a measure of empathy that I think I have for them and their struggle, uh, where I can look at them and say like. I hear you and I feel you because a lot of the frustrations you're feeling, no matter what that background is, I think we have those shared emotions mm-hmm. and those shared feelings. Um, yet at the same time, I also know that as I try to navigate into this process and navigate into this, uh, you know, into, into this world, uh, the solutions that we are looking for, whether you're talking to the chicken farmer or the waterman or the entrepreneur or the person who's living in third generation poverty, they're actually not that dissimilar. Everybody's looking for basically the same kind of stuff. And so now we're just trying to figure out how exactly to come up with frameworks to be able to provide that for people no matter what their background
0: yeah. is. Yeah. And I think, you know, the one common trait is that everyone w- would like to be empathized. That's and, it. You know, and, and that's, the st- that's the first exactly step. Right. Um, so, respectfully, is that why you went off to military school that kicked your ass out of Riverdale and said, go get it together? <laughs> respectfully, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: no, because my mother had been threatening me with this since I was eight. Yeah. Like, I mean, that, and that's the thing when people talk about you know with my mom like i i i I don't blame her like my behavior justified it they were pissed you wasted this opportunity that they envisioned for you absolutely and and like and she was right like the amount of sacrifice that my family continued to make for me um in retrospect i'm actually embarrassed by yep i am embarrassed i feel that i i went you know i went to
0: college for a year. Uh, I didn't finish a class and then my second year I convinced my father to pay for some night classes and he was middle class I knew what it meant to work for the tuition and at the time I really wasn't like appreciative of it yeah. and I think about it now and I'm like damn he busted his ass to send me to college for 2 years mm-hmm. and I ain't show up to one class exactly. like how many like and I, listen it, it, it we're not alone you know what i'm saying that's like immaturity that's youth but i get it too you know i get it um but all right go on so no
1: but 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 i i think i think that's real and and it's one thing where there's an embarrassment on the fact that you know and i think to myself oftentimes where i'm like had i known at 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 what people were doing on behalf of me, what I've done different, and it kind of—I think you're right, man. It, it goes back to the case of immaturity. I don't know if I would have even done differently back yeah. then. I think that's just the—that was the the immature mindset. you Kind of right. found ourselves in. But after threatening me since I was since I was eight, uh, and literally getting to the point, she'd give me brochures. She showed me she wasn't <laughs> kidding around. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like really telling me, like I'm serious. Like you got to get this together. Yeah. Um, I mean, first time that I felt handcuffs my wrist was when I was 11 and she was like I can't do this anymore and when i was 13 she's like i can't do this anymore i'm going to send you away to school and um, and uh, and i told her i was like hi mommy i'm going to work harder you know because that's what i always told her and she just let it go at that point uh, and she i thought she was letting go because she believed me yeah. she was letting go because she couldn't afford it yeah. right she wanted she wanted to send me off earlier but she just couldn't she she couldn't do it and then finally, when I was 13, uh, you know, she ended up making a decision and sent me off to military school yeah. when I was 13 years old. You were like, Mommy, I'm going to do better. She's like, don't mommy me no more, Wes. <laughs> <laughs> no, <I made> <laughs> Get packing. Get packing. <laughs> yeah. Wes, just so you know, we're
2: all rivals here. You did Riverdale. You did Field City. Yeah. Horseman.
1: Oh, man. All the hill schools, man. Yeah, yep. All the
0: hill schools. I think we all, each school has its own, like, distinguished thing. Oh, absolutely. But we'll all say something different because we'll all be a bit biased. Except for you because you probably don't care. I, but see, I, don't, I don't rep
1: it like that. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I've, I. You but, you, but you know, what's crazy. They actually invited me back to be their graduation speaker, like like six years ago. Oh, really? And it was crazy. So this is a true story. They called me be the graduation speaker, and they're like, uh, you know, we'd like for you to come back and graduate. And I was kind of, I was silent. And the guy who who was the, was the head of school at that time, he said, he was like, hello. Because it was on the phone, I said, "I said, oh, I'm still here." I said, "You do know it didn't work out that well for me," <laughs> and he's like, "He's like, yeah." He's like, "The damage you caused is just about fixed." So he's like, "So we decided to invite you back to campus," and so they invited me to be the graduation speaker, <laughs> and they gave me an honor—they gave me an honorary degree. It was amazing because I was like, "Now it actually hangs up in my mom's house." I was like, "She earned it more than I did." That's incredible. Man. But you know, and, but it's funny. I had lunch with them afterwards, and they said something to me. They're like, "What could we have done to make your experience better when you were here?" And I thought about it and my answer to them was, I wish you all would have chosen to have conversations with me instead of just about me. Yeah. Because had you actually asked me what was going on and why my behavior was the behavior that it was, I might have actually told you. Yeah. But I was like, but no one ever bothered to even ask me. They just kept on having that's conversations. Really
0: about me. That's that's probably a representative of the time, a bit like the end of it. Fieldston, right. you know, they call themselves the Ethical Culture School. It's actually all we did was talk about the issues. <laughs> like from the time we were a kid, it was like, Why didn't you go to gym? What's really going on? And it's like nothing's really going on. Like <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not deeper than you think in this case. Um, but so when you, you go to military school, which you know was a threat. Um, w- w- like, were you scared of this threat? Cause it's a real thing. Like I would have been scared of that threat as a kid.
1: I wasn't scared of the threat cause I didn't think it was real. You know, I, I think the things that scare us are the things that we actually think have a chance of being real. Yeah. And I just had I no, I, I was like, dang, gonna send me away. So what happened when you got there? <laughs> they sent me away. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny that first, that first morning was so crazy. Um, we had bunk beds and in each of the, in each of the, the docks in each of the rooms, and I was on the top bunk, and my roommate was on the bottom bunk. And uh, and they start playing, and it's 30 in the morning, and they start playing heavy metal music. I don't know if y'all remember the song, uh, um, uh, Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. And Yana starts with the big guitar. Ooh, ooh,
2: ooh.
1: They're blasting a the song on the hallway. They're flashing these lights on and off. And they're hitting trash cans with sticks. And they're screaming. They're like, get out of your racks. Get out of your racks. So everyone's jumping out of the beds, but <laughs> I look up and I look at the clock, because the clock plugged in, and the clock said 5.30 in the morning. And so my roommate jumps out of bed, and his like, legs are shaking, and he's looking at me, he's like, we gotta, we gotta go, we gotta go. So I look at my roommate, and I look at the clock, and the clock says 5.30. So I look back at my roommate, and I said, dude, it is, it is 5.30 in the morning. And I said, tell him to come get me around eight. <laughs> I, like, I like I like to sleep so late. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was, like, I was like, tell him I'll be ready to go at that time, as if this was an optional wake-up call. Yeah. And so he runs out and then I hear like, why is only one person outside this door? The door slams open, my first sergeant, who I was 13 at the time, my first sergeant was like 17, comes into the room and he's looking at me still sleeping in bed. So he's screaming at me, yelling at me, and all that kind of stuff. And I take my pillow, because I have my pillow over my head to try to block the noise. I take my pillow off my head and I look at him and I say, man, if you can get out of my room. And I'm 13, he's 17. So he looks at me and he just smiles. And he walks out of the room. You don't know what you're about to get into. (laughs) I had no idea. I was like, oh, this thing is much easier than I thought. Next thing I know, the entire chain of command walk into my room. And all of them walk in the room. They take my bunk and they take the rat, take the mattress off of the off of the rack, off the middle part, and flip the mattress over. And then I fall <laughs> five feet to the ground. <laughs> that was my first morning at this place. So, <laughs> needless <laughs> to say, I'm like, I'm not staying. <laughs> oh These people are oh crazy. Man. And that was my that was my introduction. He, he was my man, I like to sleep till eight. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but what what besides like the obvious, so it's just academic training and military training, that's yeah. the difference.
1: But you know, honestly, I think the biggest thing I got from it um there was the academic training there was the military and and yeah I mean they woke you up early they made you do push-ups they did all that kind of stuff that you just had to do right um I honestly think the biggest thing that I got from there was the leadership because they start you off very very early on leadership and it's very intentional and they're gonna put you in charge of something small and if you do that well they're gonna graduate you now you're gonna charge something bigger Right, so first I'm in charge of this room. If it's clean, they're gonna congratulate me. If this room is dirty, then Lord help me. But then they notice the room is clean. They're like, all right, more. nice job. Now we're gonna make you a squad leader, and we're gonna put you in charge of somebody, and in, pro- in charge of a group of people. And if let's say, so gee, let's say you're in my squad, and let's say you show up five minutes late for class, never, <laughs> never. <laughs> but the teacher's not gonna ask you why are you late. The teacher's gonna ask you, who's your squad leader? And they're gonna come find me. And they're gonna to come to me and they're gonna say, he was five minutes late for my class today. Why? And I better have an answer, right? And so there's this graduated sense of responsibility that I think that, and, and leadership, that I think I didn't just learn there, but I'm a, just a big believer in for so many of our children it's like they wanna be, be a part of something. They want leadership. They want something that they can hold on to and be responsible for. And so the question then just becomes, what can we do to introduce to that to them early? Mm. That's gonna put them in a positive space, because trust me, if we hold off, someone else is gonna find something yeah. to introduce that to them.
0: You know, it's funny, because that's, I went, when you were saying, um, when you gave that analogy about G being late to class, I was thinking about it, because just in that short exercise, There's a level of communication that you have to have to G. There's a level of accountability that G then has to have to you and you have to have up. Yep. There's a certain way in which you're going to communicate, advocate for what you need and expect. And that's one exercise, right? And you're starting to cement that over and over again, I would assume that right. is about the best way to build these foundational skills. And right. you, you quickly, I mean, it, it's never quickly, but like when reading your bio, it's like I'm in the middle of like, all right, he was all messed up. He goes to military school. And then it's like Rhodes Scholar damn you just jumped ahead now the guys now you're at oxford and you're a Rhodes scholar i'm like all right i didn't see that turn coming nobody did you obviously one flip of the mattress really worked for you. <laughs> that's what happens when you hit your head that's from the top bunk bed Glenn wrong man yeah so so did it click at that point was it
1: was that the inflection point yeah um or one of them? It was definitely one of them. I swear, I, I I think my life is just like this consistent thread of, and maybe it's like all of our lives, right? But it's this consistent thread of, you know, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. um, And, and that's just kind of like the cycle, right? So there was definitely never like this, you know, like, oh, like it all made sense moment. You know what I mean? Um, But at the same time, I, I think what did happen at that point, when you start feeling like you're responsible for something more than just you, yeah. when you start feeling like your actions actually have impacts on people's lives more than just yours. That was a moment when I think I started to it, it started to make sense. And and I, I remember thinking about, you know, and this goes back to the role that sports played in my life, the fact that, you know, how integral that was and the way that I thought about both teammates and partnerships and how to keep myself straight mentally, physically, et cetera, because people were relying on me, right? Yeah. When I thought about what it meant for my siblings, and I have two sisters, like, you know, our ability to be able to do, uh, you know, support our mom and our family, because I had people now who I understood were relying on yeah. me. And so I do think that there was this idea that we weren't alone in it that started to have a real impact on on my behavior and how I approach the world. And once I started doing that, I think a lot of other things started falling into place. Yeah, because that's like if G's five minutes late,
0: you're getting it. So that's now right. he's got to feel a responsibility to you. That's right. And if you don't, you know, and, and vice versa, so. That's right. Yeah, I get, I, I get it, you know, and that's what I, you know, that's what I meant by like, there must be a very simple clarity to the principles that you're taught at, at military camp because it's based on like human needs and survival, not like
1: a project that you're p- distributing right. or putting out. Pure accountability. Yeah. How do, how do you make yourself accountable to not just a thing, but a person? Accountability for each other and each other's actions.
2: So
0: then um, you you get through your scholastic time and now are like a well kind of experienced and studied student, you're a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford, Um, so you have the world at your hands in in some degree, but you end up now you're fighting in the war right, in Afghanistan. Was it
1: early, like right when the war started, 2001? Well, so it it was. And um, in fact, I remember we left... For Oxford, yeah. uh, September 23rd of 2001. So only a couple weeks after 9/11, we were some of the first transatlantic flights that were allowed back. Because, um, you know, I, I know you remember. I don't know, I don't know. if you're old enough to remember, but they started. They stopped flights yeah. going back and forth, you know, across the Atlantic after 9/11 for a while. That was such an amazing time, man. Crazy. Um, but um, but then so we were one of the, some of the first transatlantic flights that they were allowing back after that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was wild, because at that time, I was a first lieutenant in the Army. I'd been commissioned in 1998, um, became a first lieutenant in, in May of 2001. And right after 9-11, everything changed, because like some of these people who I trained with, some people I went through airborne school with and all that kind of stuff, um, they were now getting ready to deploy. And I was getting ready to go to Oxford. Yeah. You know what I mean, and go like do high tea and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and so it was very, it was, it was, it was very complicated for me because there was a real part of me that was incredibly thankful for this opportunity to go study in Oxford and do the be a Rhodes Scholar. And there was a part of me that was like, but yeah, but like, my boys are going. My boys are going over. Yeah. They're going overseas too, except they're not going over to you know to go de- do high tea. And. um and so it was a um, I remember having conversations with folks in the military, in my units and asking, you know, how do we handle this? Um, and they're like, you know, listen, don't worry, we're not going to forget about you. You need to go do what you need to do. And trust me, you know, we'll, we're going to get you on, on, on a back end. And um, after I finished my studies at Oxford, I was doing actually finance in London and I got a phone call from a guy named at that time, Major Mike Fenzel. By the way, he's now a three star general. Uh, but Major Mike Fenzel, uh, who's like my guy, one of my best friends, he um, he called me up, and I was working, I was doing finance, and I go to the hallway, um, like the alcove where the stairs are. And he's talking to me. He's like, how's it going? I'm like, it's going okay. And he asked me, he's like, so when are you going to get in the fight? And because he knows me so well, that's like the <laughs> oh, most exciting thing that you could say. It's like. You went through this training, you did all this stuff, you went through this thing with your soldiers. When are you gonna get in the fight? Because I think Mike at that time was probably on a second, maybe on his way to his third deployment at that time. And I'm sitting there like, hadn't seen any action. And, um, and I remember really thinking about it and talking with him. And then I ended up doing a, a by name request to, and, and I actually told people that I, I was, I got, you know, my number got pulled or like that. It wasn't true. I did a by name request, I volunteered and uh and i went back up with the with the 82nd airborne division which was which was his unit and uh and then you know went down was out, out in Fort benning uh and then uh from 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 benning actually went to uh you know headed overseas to afghanistan with the 82nd
2: hold on so blown away you're, you're <laughs> accepted at oxford you're there but you feel this sense of obligation to go because of your unit right yeah you're the like, whole they, time. They're there, so I got to be there.
1: whole time. I went and I, fin- I actually I finished my master's. I was in the process of doing my, my DPhil, which is kind of like the extended work, and I started working in finance. But the whole time.
2: And, and at the time, the purpose was to find Osama.
1: Uh, at that time, yes, Our weapons yeah. of mass destruction. Yeah, no, fight. you're right. And in Afghanistan, uh, that was, part of the whole mission of Afghanistan. Because remember, when we first went to Afghanistan, uh, part of the whole mission there was Afghanistan was harboring Al Qaeda. That's right, yeah. That's right. The Taliban was harboring Al Qaeda, and uh, and so when we first had forces that went over there, it was exclusive. on the point was, you know, this is the one. This is you know the only country that was openly harboring the people who are claiming responsibility for 9-11. And so when you watch this entire coalition of US, British, French, Israeli, et cetera, all these forces that were going over there, it was exclusively about the fact that you had a a government that was openly harboring terrorist organizations that were planning and plotting and training people who are conducting these terrorist in, actions in the seas. most desolate caves oh. in the desert right and we and and i'm telling you and and we saw it. you when you get over to afghanistan i um i remember doing all the reading about afghanistan before read all the you know Red ghost wars and all these other amazing books about the fight in afghanistan mainly uh, i was talking about things like you know the russian wars and the mujahideen and all this kind of stuff but when you get over there and you see that terrain, and you see why people say it is the hardest place in the world to fight in, um, because of the elevation, because of the jaggedness of the mountains, because you know, it's difficult for planes to be able to go because of the measure of outs and the jaggedness, visibility, it's difficult for choppers to go because choppers have a very difficult time navigating that kind of rain. So much of the stuff is like literally, it's on foot. I mean it is it's it's, like it's hard hard fight. Right? That's right. That's right. And not to mention the fact that you're you're talking about forces who know the terrain like the back yeah. of their hands and you don't.
0: Yeah, they're like living in it. They're living underground the in these like sand caves. That's it.
1: And you think you think about you think about it where it's like when you're looking at Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a country that essentially has been in a constant state of war for like 40 years. And a sporadic state of war for centuries. I mean, every single person you met in Afghanistan who is under the age of 40, all they've known is war. Is war, yep. That's it. And whether you're talking about war with U.S., whether you're talking about war with Russians, what are you ta- no matter who, no matter what flag is on the shoulder, it's all they've known. Yeah. And you think about what that psychologically means to the place that you call home is an all you have ever known coming up is that there are people, foreigners in your country, in your land, and your territory has essentially become this battleground for other people's ambitions uh, where your ambitions were never being thought about. And all that, and I think that was that was just this fascinating um, yeah. dichotomy. I think when you kind of you learn and you realize just how why fighting over there is so hard, yeah. and why it's been so difficult.
0: You know, we can. I want to get back into your life, but being that you have so much experience and that you did fight in Afghanistan as a military personnel, where do you see as the future? potentially for our military here as it relates to
1: what's happening in Ukraine right now. Mm. Ukraine is such a, uh, it is such a, a heartbreaking thing to watch. Um, but I tell you one thing that's fascinating about Ukraine to me is um, we knew early that this thing was going to be different. And when we pulled out of Afghanistan, when the U.S. and other forces pulled yeah. forces out of Afghanistan, the, one of the things that was really um really startling for a lot of us was how quickly a lot of these afghan cities started falling to the taliban right yeah um and the reality is is that uh you know that it's it's not like the taliban has this unbelievable military it's not like these are just like this is the greatest military force on earth um the only way you are watching cities fall within hours is if you're not seeing the kind of fight that you would have thought you would have been able to see, you know, you know, someone to me in joke, said you, you know, you can't take corners in Baltimore that fast. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. but, this, but this is a when you watch and now and think about what's happened in Ukraine, where I don't think the Russians anticipated the kind of fight that the Ukrainians were going to give them. Mm hmm where you know literally where you watched you know you watch people who are saying and you know whether it's you know Zelensky said, saying you know anyone who wants a weapon we will get you one mm-hmm. like these folks were not giving up their yeah. they weren't giving up their land they're the, the 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 pride that you have for people who are just proudly ukrainian in this moment they have shown this over and over and over again in a way that i don't think that the Russians were prepared for, mm-hmm. because there is this kind of narrative that, oh yeah, that's just a, that's just, it's a Russian territory. No, it is not. Yeah, these folks are proudly Ukrainian. Yeah, right. Yep. And I think that that was something where um, you saw in Afghanistan where there, there, there is a, there is a difference in this way that so much of what we had in Afghanistan, it was very and still is very tribal, right? A person who is uh, Pashtun and a Pashtun on the Afghan side of the border, and a Pashtun on the Pakistani side of the border, they associate as Pashtun, right? Not necessarily Afghani or Pakistani, you know, Pakistani or whatever the case might be. Um, and so that's a very different dynamic mm-hmm. that you're then going into. I remember, you know, one story um, that I'll never forget is, you know, we would hand out these thing called, you know, surf the commander of ministry r- r- relief funds and go out when we meet with shuras and meet with local leaders and give them little things. And one of the things that we would give them were these cutout flags, right? And and, and you know, it's like these little flags that people wave. And it would be the Afghan flag and how the, the, there's a cutout of Afghanistan in the middle with the with the Afghan colors in the, in the flag. And I remember once having, as we were giving these things out, one of the people was asking us, you know, and I was asking my interpreter to say, what's he saying? And he was saying, he's asking, what is this? And I was telling him, I was like, oh, it's just a flag. And I was kind of, then I showed him, I was just you, just, you just wave it, it's just a flag. And he said, no, no, he's asking, what what is this? There was no. I was like, it's your country. Yeah,
0: there was no flag to them.
1: There was no yeah. flag. And so this idea of a nationalism in all of this, ha, it can't be forgotten. And I think we're seeing it in Ukraine in such an amazing way. Yeah. Like these folks are fighting for yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, you know, be, uh, the, the, the last question on this that I'll leave you with is a lot of times these things happen and in our society especially in the last two or three years with everything that's happened where you spend months and months hoping something bad doesn't happen or that yeah. the outcome doesn't end up the way you know you're it's looking like it will be but then it ultimately does right mm-hmm. do you think ultimately we will end up one way or the other
1: involved in in battle with Russia um I, I, I don't think it is inevitable. And I think that what the president is trying to do now um, and our joint chiefs um, is trying to avoid that. Yep. I, I think they understand that, you know, the number one responsibility for the president of the United States, um, you know, the number one title that isn't that kind of the official title is commander in chief. That, that is the that is the ultimate responsibility that a president has, um, frankly it's the same ultimate responsibility that a, a, a governor has. Yep. That the governor is the commander in chief of, of the That's state's same. national guards, yep. right? Um, and I think that the president understands wholeheartedly and particularly we consider his family background and, and his son that, um, that when, you are, when you choose to put soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guards people in, 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 in harm's way, um you're not just making a commitment to them you're not just making a commitment to their family you're making a commitment to this country that you understand the ramifications and implications of what you just asked and what you just ordered Mm -hmm. and um and i think the president does have a full appreciation of the weight of further escalation of this of further using military forces and all this, but I think that always has to be balanced on the number one obligation that the president has is the safety and security of the people of this country, and also uh, you know, is, is, uh, you know, for for each and every one of us, um, you know, we sign an oath mm-hmm. that we will defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic um and so i think that we have our diplomatic core and our diplomatic team rightfully working overtime right now to try to figure out how do we get to a conclusion how do we get to something in this where we can address the fact that what russia is doing is not just inhumane it's illegal um yet at the same time knowing that uh further escalation particularly when we're talking about military forces that's not something that you can easily just put back into a bottle yeah once that's o- when that's open
0: i don't want to make light of it but i feel like when these people throw around the word war crimes it's like if somebody just murdered someone and ran a red light and you was like yo pull them over they ran a red like right. we know it's a war crime bro that's you're right. at war like this guy doesn't give <laughs> a right. shit about a war crime but whatever so no you're you, right you know what i'm saying you're
1: Right. You're right. <laughs>
0: Come out of Afghanistan, and, and it's funny because like a little um, anecdote in his career is serving as a White House fellow on issues of national security and internet relations. That's like a mixtape I put out when I was managing <laughs> artists or something. <laughs> um, but then you turned your life into writing books and being an author. Um, and let me ask you a question: At this point in your life, is your mom proud? Is she? Is she? Uh, she's pleased with what came of military school?
1: She's she's. Uh She's relieved.
0: Relieved. Okay, so you're home from Afghanistan. That makes sense. She's, She's relieved. relieved, and you start She's writing relieved. books. And yeah. what was the vision for yourself at that point? Like, yeah. did you did you see politics and where you are now, or did you
1: just start telling your story? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting cause, because because um, when I when I wrote the Other Westmore, I was actually still I was working in finance, and so I was actually up here uh, working in finance, uh, up here when I say New York, sorry, up here. And, um, and I had gotten to know this guy named Wes Moore and who around the same time that I received a, uh, you know, received the road scholarship, uh, he was being convicted for a life sentence, um, for, uh, a botched tourist armed robbery, which ended up in the murder of an off duty police officer. And, um, and the more I learned about this story, the more questions I had. And, uh, and one day, I just decided to write him a note. And you know, I, I found out he was at Jessup Correctional Institution, which was, at that time, I think that's about 20 miles away, more or less, from, from Baltimore City, uh, which is where I was living at the time. And, uh, and I wrote him this note. Um, and you know, about a month later, I got a letter back from Jessup Correctional Institution from Westmore. And the one letter turned into dozens of letters, those dozens of letters turned into dozens of visits. Uh, and then eventually this idea and this concept of the other Westmore came about, of being able to tell the story of these two kids um, and what ends up happening that causes this split amongst these, amongst these two kids and how you watch these differences show themselves. Uh, and it's really meant to be an understanding of just our larger society and our larger psychology and just about how you know how we're very quick to either congratulate or to castigate and we don't yet even fully understand the backgrounds of what we're talking about and um and i remember working in finance at that time and i uh and i put together this book i wasn't sure what was going to end up happening with it uh and the book really starts to move because I think it was forcing society to ask some hard questions about itself, about frankly, how sometimes just how dispensable these young black lives can feel to people about how our society looks at second chances and last chances about how, uh, about how we think about the consequences of individual decisions that it doesn't just impact that person, but it's going to impact everybody who ends up being touched then by this life. And um, and then I think it was at that point, you know, I was doing well in finance and all that kind of stuff and, and getting promoted and all that kind of thing. And then but eventually I just said, I said, uh, I, I feel like my life's destiny should be elsewhere. I feel like I'm not I wasn't um, I wasn't fulfilled in the way that I want to feel. And I said, these are the type of questions that I want to spend my life trying to answer. Mm-hmm. These are the type of issues that I want to spend my life trying to fix. Yep and that's when i eventually I decided um i went to uh you know my old boss a, a guy named ray McGuire, uh, who you know end up end up running for running for mayor in new york um and is still just a, a dear friend and mentor of mine and um and i went to him i said i think it's time for me to go and he's like you know things are going well here you're doing really well yeah. i said i understand um but i think it's time and uh and he's like i think you're ready and that was it and you took that
0: experience and probably all of your experiences and and writing these books and answering these tough questions did it make you realize you had to do something uh to give back now and that you had
1: to do something philanthropically is that what led to Robin Hood it did I mean it was it was it really played with at that point this measure of urgency that we have to start addressing we got to address systems um and one of the things I was really excited about for the opportunity to be the CEO of Robin I mean Robin is one of the largest poverty-fighting organizations in the country. I mean, uh, you, know, you know, I remember some of our first conversations, we were talking about, you know, homelessness and housing insecurity yep. and all this kind of stuff, and to think that, you know, just in my time as CEO of Robinhood, you know, we allocated over $650 million going towards housing and yep. education and transportation and food insecurity and criminal justice reform. Uh, but also, awesome. I mean, it was, it, was, it was amazing and really using data to find what works, how do we fund it, and how do we scale it, right? And then but it was also like, how do you then focus on policies? And so we had the chance of being able to do things like you know, focus on adjustments to the child tax credit because we had, it used to have a child tax credit, unfortunately we still do, because uh, they now allowed it to lapse. But we had a child tax credit, something that was in a poverty-fighting tool that was leaving 27 million children in poverty because they were too deep into poverty. Because they couldn't qualify for it because there was an earning. And so by making simple adjustments that we fought for and advocated for, like things like making it fully refundable and also paying it out monthly instead of annually, it was able to help cut the child poverty rate in this country by half. Right. Or being able to work on, you know, work on issues like, you know, like, you know, kids in immigration court where, you know, everybody has a right to counsel unless you're undocumented. And so we literally had children, three year olds who were defending themselves in immigration court because they did not have a right to counsel. And so, you know, these. So we think about issues that we are able to work in partnership with the private sector, work in partnership with business, work in partnership with, with you know, with with philanthropy, nonprofits, the people, to be able to make these large scale changes. And so, it, so I think you're exactly right. There was a point that eventually you just realized if we are not attacking systems that keep on allowing people to fall between the cracks, then we are doing nothing but cleaning up the debris. Mm-hmm that comes from broken systems. And that debris is human life. And that's where I think I I decided I wanted to focus. You
0: know what's really crazy? I'm listening to like very intently to all these kind of lessons and how it led to the next place that you're at in your life and starting from your father's passing and you realizing how important that like that idea of nothing is given to you and that there's no promise for tomorrow. And then you kind of start to take that for granted again at school and then go to the far extreme in the military. Come out, make some money because you realize what it's like to not have any. Start to tell your story because it serves the purpose of making money and educating people. But then you had, well, shit, what am I doing to fix it? And there goes philanthropy and politics. And right. you're only 43, though, too. So, I mean, you could probably do a lot more, man. President, <laughs> NBA team, whatever you want. Um, I
1: got to pick up the pace,
0: man. <laughs> you, Joe, there's
1: please don't pick up the pace.
0: <laughs> please don't. Running Robin Hood, um, we talked about this. I, yeah. I was enamored with it for a multitude of reasons, because when I first went to the gal, I realized that you were basically also like the CEO of Disney.
2: <laughs> 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 <No>.
0: <laughs> because what you had to do in terms of managing. It's crazy. Yeah. the amount of personalities and yeah. wealthy individuals, people that were utilizing Robin Hood for good, yeah. ones utilizing it for themselves, yeah. and navigating through all that and figuring out the best use of all of this money you raised. Um, and probably putting a lot of people to, to task, a lot of people that like would come up at the gala talking a lot and then yeah. you'd have to follow up the next 364 days of the year right. on their big promise. Right. Um, was running an organization that big in the philanthropic space, were there times where it was disheartening because when it 's that big, what you 're doing like below gets lost
1: it's mm. a great question um, it wasn't it wasn 't disheartening in, in, uh, in, in this way because you realize uh, if you could just center the conversation just how much you could actually get done you know one of the things I loved about um, about the work, you know, when people said, "Well, who made up Robin Hood Universe?" Right, and my answer was, I mean, I was like, it was, it was investment bankers and school teachers, right? It was, it was management consultants and it was social workers. It was everybody, like you know, it was. And my job was to create a broad enough tent that we could actually fit everyone under the tent, with an exclusive goal and with an exclusive vision that we have got to end poverty. It is unconscionable that we allow children to exist knowing that for children who are growing up in poverty their chances of being adults who will die in poverty are are staggeringly high. We are not even giving them a chance to achieve their own destiny, whatever their own God-given destiny actually set out to be. And so I think one of the things that I, I loved about the work was the ability to actually center the work on community. And I think that was actually part of our part of the secret sauce of what we we're able to get done, where I say, like, you know, the, the people who are closest to the challenge were always the ones who are closest to the solutions. Mm-hmm. They're just hardly ever at the table. And so our ability to say, how do we create, uh, you know, how to create frameworks in the way that we do our grants, where we're saying, if we're going to say we want the experts around the table, when we say experts, I'm not just talking about the person who, you know, has the PhD and whatever, or the person who wrote the great op-ed that everyone's talking about, but like, do you actually have impacted populations around the table? And not just giving them a voice, but giving them a vote. You know, we literally created, you know, uh, what we had something called the design insight group. Which is essentially—it's you know—it's—it's it's at that time you know fourteen hundred New Yorkers who were living in poverty, and saying we're going to pay them to be part of our team, essentially be like a UI UX on on everything that we are yeah. going to invest in, because if you know, I mean, I think about it in the same way, like you know, an in, an iPhone, right? Do you know how many hands had to touch my iPhone before it actually went to market? Mm-hmm. Because they're like, if we when we put it to market, we're gonna make sure. That This is a product that people like, so like you have people who actually would be potential users who give you feedback on that. well, why should philanthropy or anything else be any different where we 're trying to create solutions for people who weren 't part of a part of the process of actually creating solutions yep and so you 're going to create platforms, create programs, and fun things that will turn around and be roundly rejected because people are like that 's not how that 's not what I need yeah, that that's gets lost a
0: lot it's funny because you know and this is a good transition to your current uh, side hustle, I'm just kidding, this This is no side hustle, but uh, running for governor of Maryland is um, Kevin, as we've built out all of Kevin's kind of philanthropic initiatives and the vision that him and Wanda and Tony and their family have for PG County is, you know, we brought this incredible college track program to Suitland, Maryland. But one of the first things Kevin said was, I can tell you right now, there's a lot of these kids that have no intention of going to college. So, what are we doing for them? Um, And I think that's important is like you do have to read exactly who the people are that you're setting out to help and make sure that you get that feedback and have some real life experience because you can get lost up there, you know, when you've got out and you're now raising money and you're sitting with people that are so disconnected from it. And then they tell you like, we want to create programming around crypto or we want to do education and media. And then someone like KD who can remember like just the smell of living, you know, in see Pleasant just That's yesterday right. will say, they're not ready for that. That's right. Like, we need jobs right out of high school. We need, they need to learn how to be a bank teller or drive a truck or whatever it is That's to, right. you know, manage your checkbook, um, learn how to save. So I think that is obviously like a, a little bit of what I meant by how it can sometimes probably be disheartening when you're raising so much at the top yeah. to remember that you have to get like the real customer feedback like anything exactly. else. Exactly. Um, It is still spot on. And in politics, obviously, never more important, right? Because you're running for the people. Um, Going back to what I said about how I do feel like Maryland and that state, Drips out of you, and you know I have so many peers and, co- and contemporaries from that area, and I know how they feel about you. Whether it's Kevin Lyles or Carmelo Anthony, KD, and his mom. Um, what was the reasoning? Because you were in New York, you looked happy. I mean, I'll be honest. We met on the Upper West Side. You, you did look like the CEO of Disney. <laughs> but um, but yeah. you but you're always about the people. You're always yeah. like, it's just it's it exudes out of you you. Tell me about the love you have for your state. Um, and when you told me what you were doing, it made sense to me. It made sense to any yeah. of our friends that you know, knew you were doing this. Um, but what was it? What, what inspires you, and how did your family feel about this?
1: Well, and, and, and first let me say, I love the work that y'all continue to do down there. I mean, like, the community loves you, and it is well-deserved. It is well-deserved. Oh, thank you. You know KD and his family love PG, like... And, P, and let me tell you something, and, and Prince Georges County of love them right back. They are, they are Prince George's. They are gorgeous Prince Georges. Yes, they, they, are. Really are. They, they really are. They really are. And you know, but honestly, I think it was, it was one of the things that I think just continued to continue to eat at me on, on things that even we saw at Robin Hood. Um, but also I just continue to see in my own neighborhood as well is that like opportunity is, is, is readily available to some. It's just so unbelievably dangerously absent to others. And you think to yourself in this moment, like it's not okay that we can have some of the greatest tech companies in the world in the state of Maryland. I mean, Maryland, Maryland is poised to become the capital of quantum, right? And we have children who don't have access to Wi Fi, they don't have a chance to participate in that. And that's not their fault. That's our fault that we can have the greatest medical institutions in the world in the state of Maryland. People literally fly from around the globe to come get treated in the state of Maryland. And we have people who live down the street from them who cannot afford basic care. Right. That's not fair. There's a measure of there's a there's a measure of clarity that we want for our society where it's not that everyone is going to going to end up in the same spot. But everyone at least deserves a fair shot. Yep. And so when I think about so much of these things that are going on right now, like, for example, you know, uh, you know, we did an initiative at Robin Hood uh, called uh, called 90 to zero, which is addressing the racial wealth gap. And I remember having a conversation and it's, and it's a remar- remarkable initiative. I'm very proud of, of the work that we did to lead on it. But it was working with everyone from you know, Goldman Sachs and Starbucks to the ACLU to Howard University, like literally across the board. What can individual organizations do to be able to address the fact that in this country, there is a 10 to one racial wealth gap in the state of Maryland alone. It is eight to one. Right. And I remember having a conversation with one of my colleagues and I told when I told him I was getting ready to leave and I was like, I think I'm gonna run for governor of my home state. And I said, I told him I want to close the racial wealth gap in the state of Maryland. And they're like, you're already doing it like you're already you built out this amazing yeah, initiative yeah, to do yeah, this yeah. why would you leave to go run for governor and my honest answer back to them was why do you think the wealth gap exists in the first place right it doesn't exist because one group is working eight times harder or ten times harder it's it, it exists because we still have systems that's allowing it to exist and allowing it to grow bigger and so when we're talking about You know, and I love the fact that you mentioned, you know, we have all these brand new, exciting opportunities that the state of Maryland will capture and particularly is going to capture after we win this thing. Right. Where it's going to be, you know, we are going to watch brand new growth and everything from, you know, crypto and cannabis and all this stuff is going to happen. But if this does not happen in a way that is going to help close the wealth gap and if this happens in a way that actually increases it. Like the way we've seen so many other industries yeah, growing out, back, man. there's no turning back. Yeah. And so this is where we are not going to be aggressive in the way we're saying we need to make our state more competitive, but also make it more equitable. If we can do those two things, then we're going to be all right. Yep. But we've got to make sure that both those two things are prioritized. Oh,
0: man, you know it's funny because when you speak, it it reminds me of something that I talk about a lot as it relates to politics. It's obvious, and other people talk about it, but I don't think it's given enough merit, which is that there's two parties, right? And then within each party, there's God knows how many parties, right? Um, so assuming that you're voting your party, if you start to look at it the way I look at um, a founder of a company that I'm looking to invest in, or uh, a CEO of a company that I'm partnering with, or anyone that you decide to invest in a public stock of a company that's run by a CEO, is you look at these intangibles, the ability to galvanize people, lead, instill confidence, remain calm, uh, compose themselves on behalf of their organization, the state of Maryland, the United States of America. And I I voted for Biden, right? Mm -hmm. But we all can agree that one of the biggest commentaries on him are things as mundane as like him handshaking the air the other day, right? I I don't mean to make fun of him, but that's a lot of what people want to criticize, policy too, but the policy within this like blurry space of like, all right, you did vote for him. I think being a leader and being a CEO of your organization in politics is so incredibly important and never been more important than now when you see what happens when we literally live in times of real crisis, a battle. COVID was a battle, we were at war. Yeah. Right now, the whole country's on guard, right? People live uneasy. And the void has been leadership, period. From day one, the void was leadership. Um, You talk about some of these other countries that learn how to live with war in Israel or some of these places. And people can adapt if they're led and they're informed and educated. Um, And from that standpoint, I don't see how anybody could win the governor of Maryland besides you. And I think that, you know, anyone that's in your presence feels that way. I would vote for you if I didn't know any of your policy. And now I've learned more and more and more and more. And of course I'll vote for you. And everyone that meets you is inspired and blown away by you. And I do think it's important to drive that because you have to leave, you have to lead that, that state, you know, and everyone's on a good leader.
1: Yeah. You no, were trained, man. You were trained to lead. No, but you know, but you know, uh, and I, and I, I, personally, I, I so appreciate that. And, and, um, it, it it's something where and I think you brought up a really a really important point here and I think how we even think about the the discourse and all this stuff right now, where you know, I am I am a I'm a you know, I'm a proud democrat, but I don't think progress is partisan. Yeah. And I think that when it comes to being a chief executive, like the thing that you have to be committed to is the people, yeah. not an ideology. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, like I, 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 think about, I, I think about, no, there is no, uh, and again, it's a difference between being a chief executive and running for governor or something else, where there is not a democratic nor a Republican way to make sure that the streets get cleaned up, or that we can come up with proper public safety mechanisms, or that we can make sure that people can get proper healthcare, mm-hmm. or that our children can get educated. Right? I remember having a conversation with um, a group of small business owners in, in, in Dundalk, in Baltimore County. Dundalk's a more conservative area uh, for Baltimore County. And, um, and one of the guys, you know, I was, in the, I was talking about, it, and we have very detailed policy plans. I was breaking down our policy plans for small businesses, what we want to do for small businesses. One of the guys said, I got to tell you. He's like, listen, I love what you're talking about. He said, but I'm on the other side. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? And he's like, he's, like, he's like, it just means I'm a Republican. And I said, do you know a question I never once asked my soldiers? What's your political party? I said, it never came up. I was like, we had one goal, one job, one mission. My job was to unify the unit around a singular goal. And to get us to a I said, you know when I was running a business, you know a question I never once asked my, my coworkers or my customers? How did you vote in the last election? Never came up. You know what I mean? So I, I think there is something to... Being an executive, being a chief executive, being someone who sits in an executive seat—you don't have the luxury of wearing a a, a, a a hyperpartisan cloak in the way that you do it. You need to go get the people's work done. Yep, and that's exactly how executives have to think about this process. Totally,
0: totally. Look at you know, if the MBA and the MBA PA again—I'm not making light of it. The reason they end up ultimately seeing eye to eye is because they are able to weigh issues that are more important than others, all for the common goal of moving it all ahead, forward. We have so many people involved. So if somebody's responsible for a certain bill or if it's in their jurisdiction to fight this thing, they can't see out of it so that there is no more moving it ahead because – that bill like in Texas that's being fought feels like it's life or death to them when it's obviously so evidently wrong, right? Because the overall vision of what you said, the one common goal of like, let's better this country, better relations domestically, like all of the things that are necessary just get stuck fighting over these just like two people that see completely different sides and different colors when they look at the same thing, you know? Um, but listen that's your job now my friend (laughs) I don't want to do this Um, and and I believe in it you know we're here to support you you know New York City and Maryland uh, in my opinion or the DMV in general have a very close tie or at least for me they do and and you obviously embody it with your time both being born in Maryland growing up here and then finding yourself in this next phase of your life back where you're from. And uh, you know we're here to support you, man. Thank you family. So um, Thank you for joining out of the office. G and I, you know, if you throw a cocktail party, we're there too. We hey. like to go to those political fundraisers. Like man. the fundraisers. We like to do it. We like to do it. Do some lobbying for you, whatever you need. Let me we're tell you. We're fundraise
1: crashers, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we need to bring the boardroom down to the DMV. Oh, say say less. say less. Say less. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. What a treat to listen to my man, Wes Moore, my brother, Gianni Hurrell Download boardroom.tv for everything we do. Appreciate you all. We'll be back soon. I
2: reminisce, I reminisce.
0: 92.